Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. At a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's edition of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I am so excited about our guest today, Tiffany Smiley. She's got a fantastic story uh, filled with good and bad attributes, and I really want to—I want to dive in as quickly as we can. Uh, Tiffany, welcome to today. Glad you're here. Thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you, Todd. Happy to be on with you today. Great discussion. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. So, uh, Tiffany, we have uh, this is called civil discourse, and the reason for that is because we define civil discourse as including three attributes. Thing number one, you can speak your mind with impunity. The idea is that we want to hear thoughts and ideas, and we want to do thing two, which is have a sincere intent uh, to get to a better place with regard to solutions. And then thing number three is uh, we want to. Uh, genuinely empathize with the other person's perspective as a as a function of that development of a better solution. So uh, we're free to speak as as uh, you wish. Uh, the other aspect of this is that we genuinely try and attack complicated problems. Um, so this is not a place where somebody gets a two minute TikTok video on uh, with a old white guy like me dancing on the in leotards. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, looking forward to the chat. Um, as, as always, for those of you on uh, listening in, please uh, like, subscribe, and share if this is something you find interesting. We welcome your support. Um, Tiffany, starting with your background. So you, you kind of graduated in nursing. Tell me how you got into nursing first. You know, ever since I was a little girl, I always said I wanted to be a nurse. Um, it's written in my kindergarten you know, book, What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? And I said, I want to be a nurse. It was just in my nature. And, um, you know, I grew up on a farm. So I'm a small town farm girl. And I learned the value of um, hard work, going the extra mile and putting people first. And that was really the bedrock. You know, I I didn't have much um, growing up, but I'm so grateful for those experiences. So there was, you know, no doubt what I would do after high school. Um, And that was, you know, go to school to become a nurse and got my bachelor's in science and nursing and loved every aspect. You know, nursing school is hard. It it was a a lot of studying, a lot of clinical time. um, And uh, I enjoyed every aspect of it, you know, and I, I didn't have, you know, my nursing career, we can get into this a little bit more in the conversation, but it took a you know, a radical turn. It's not the, you know, I'm not living the nursing career I thought I would have, but nonetheless, um, you know, nurses just want to make an impact in other people's lives and be of service. Um, so there's a lot of parallels to nursing. I, I'm, you know, deeply honored to come from that profession and I feel like I use it every single day. So probably because you have children and I, yes. I imagine that that's the case and they always get banged Three boys contribute. Yeah. <laughs> they keep my skills sharp. You're also a primary care service provider, right? Yes. So um, one of the things that I uncovered in my book was uh, this issue of how medical schools and nursing changed fundamentally after a guy named Abraham Flexner read his eponymous uh, report in 1910, which, uh, was an evaluation commissioned by the Carnegie Foundation that said, hey, 
oh, we're doing, we're going about this whole medical school and nursing school thing wrong. And so we need to enter into a whole bunch of things around state licensing. And uh, we need to have people go to a four-year school first and then go into nursing or doc, or, uh, or med school. Uh, then they need to do residencies and fellowships. And, and so before we get into the, the deeper topics, I'd, I'd welcome your perspective on that as a nurse. Do you do you think we can't do we can't mint nurses more efficiently and more rapidly? I'm just worried. I mean, I'm looking around and observing in real time. We are at a we have a, a gross undersupply of qualified nurses, and we can't produce them fast enough for our needs. What are your thoughts on that? You know, not only that, we we. Um there's not enough primary care doctors. And this was an issue I, I talked about a little bit like four years ago, it was an issue. So I, I don't know the numbers now, but I can't imagine that they're not good. And, you know, you look at what we've experienced over this pandemic um, over the last year and a half. And I was, I was chatting recently with um, a local hospital and um, they said, it's not that we don't have enough beds. We have a staffing issue. And that's very problematic. We should all be very concerned about that because it's clear that we have the, the technology, the research, we have the beds, right? We need the people and not just people, but like you were saying, we need skilled, efficient, effective um, nurses and I believe primary care doctors as well. So how do we do that? How do we approach that? Um, you know, how do you get more people to go into the field right now? You, I don't, I honestly don't have the answers for it um, to incentivize them or promote it or share it. But one of the ways I think we do do it is to keep, um, you know, there's got to be a mode of knowing that you can, you can research that the sky's the limit, right? That there's incentives that you're not just going to be a nurse, you're going to solve problems, you're going, you know, you're going to help heal people, you can go on beyond that and serve in your community, you know, showing the various aspects of it. Um, I think could help, but also, um, you know, our community colleges can be teaching and our local hospitals can be engaging, um, get, you know, opening their doors to interns. And I know it's a little bit of a challenge now with what we're going through in the pandemic, but I do believe there is a solution to every problem that we face. If we come together and have these discussions, um, you know, we could really move the needle, but I, I mean, yes, we, we need more nurses. We need more doctors. So in light of that, you know, why can't we have LPNs and we have RNs and LVNs? Why, yes. why can't we stratify that a little bit better and then uh, attenuate the, the education to each of those needs and then use them more efficiently? Because what I'm seeing is this almost false sense of a need for credentialing where the yes. credential is wildly greater than the needs of the job. And so oh, you're so you're so right. Sorry, not to interrupt, but you know, that brings up another point being a military spouse. So my, my credentialing was Washington state. I lived in Virginia. I lived in New York. I lived in North Carolina and um, my license did not transfer to those states, my credentialing. And usually by the time I'd gone through the state process or, or attempted to go through the state process, we were moving again. Trying to move. So that's a fight that I'm very passionate about because especially for military spouses, um, I don't under, you're exactly right. So all of a sudden the credentialing is more important than my actual skills and ability to serve in whatever community I'm living in. And I don't know about you, but I, I think it's pretty much the case that your biology and your chemistry as a human being don't change when you yes. <laughs> yes. 
Call me crazy, but I think it really doesn't make much sense, uh, you know, which then affects things, not only like your ability to practice in another jurisdiction, but also affects things like telemedicine and telehealth and the ability to leverage these technologies, smartphone and smart device usage, uh, the analysis the, of all these devices and the information they're producing, the data they're producing. It seems like we're unnecessarily tying our, our hands behind our back to deliver high quality care at a low cost. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I felt that on the ground level working as a nurse in Washington state, um, you know, it came to a point where we were being asked to see more patients in less time. Yeah. And so we weren't hiring I, anyone new. That was clear. You know, there, there, would, there would be no new hires. Um, it was all up to us and on our shoulders. And, you know, that's, that's when mistakes get made. You know, patients aren't listened to. Um, you're sort of moving people in and out. And that's, that's not good health care. No. So I, I want to pivot just a little bit because you mentioned earlier that your nursing career pivoted substantially hard, hard left um, for reasons not in your control. Tell me a little about that story, if you would. Yes. You know, I was essentially living my American dream, you know, a young farm girl that didn't come from much had achieved her dream of becoming a nurse. And not only that, I was very proud of my bachelor's in science. It, it was a big deal for our family and for me. And I was enjoying, you know, taking care of my neighbors in emergency situations. I, I had just married my high school sweetheart, Scotty, who was a newly commissioned officer from the United States Military Academy. And I, I sort of joke, you know, it's here he is an, a military officer and I'm a nurse. And my new last name is Smiley. It, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't get very much more American dreamish than that. I mean, we had our whole future ahead of us. And um, I was working as a nurse when he was deployed uh, to Mosul, Iraq. And uh, my phone rang on April 6th of 2005 before my nursing shift. And I, you know, was awoken out of bed, excited, expecting to hear Scotty's voice on the other end of the line. It wasn't Scotty's voice. Um, it was another commanding officer. And through his tears, he, you know, shared, I would say it was my worst nightmare. He, you know, he said, Tiffany, I'm so sorry. Scotty's come face to face with a suicide car bomb. One mm-hmm. thing I'm, one thing I'm certain of is that he has no eyes The the shrapnel obliterated both of his eyes. The other thing I'm not sure of is if he's going to survive or not. Um, he said, we loaded him on a black Hawk helicopter. You know, the last time I saw him, he had flatlined. So hopefully someone calls you from Balad, Iraq. I mean, my world, that American dream blew up into a million pieces. And, you know, the nurse in me just <laughs> went right into triage mode <laughs> and um, started just making decisions, asking people to pray. And I made two choices that day. I called and I resigned from my nursing job. And I packed a suitcase and purchased a one-way flight to to meet Scotty at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. I appreciate you telling that story. That's not, you know, that can't be easy. And uh, I know that's not, it still remains with you as a gut-wrenching experience. Um, And I'm so sorry that you went through that. I'm grateful for Scotty's service, but uh, I can't imagine how brutal that would be. Um, I, I had a similar situation where my mom was killed and uh, my mother and father were involved in plane crashes and a plane crash and my dad died right away. Getting the call, I was 17. Just, you know, you, you don't know how to handle it. But your story is a little bit different because you had you had to jump into go mode, jump on a plane, 
put everything on hold at home and then go look after your husband. And, and um, so kind of porpoising out of that a little bit to, to lay the context for the next paragraph. Um, you're going to a VA hospital, Walter Reed, uh, getting in, in kind of injected into the VA system. At that time, particularly, the VA did not have a good reputation. It's a single-payer system. Right? The government's paying the bill for everything. And so then, then what happens? You arrive, and what you know? Tell me about what what finding Scotty was like and how that worked. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll never forget the moment walking into his into the trauma care unit and seeing him for the first time. Um, you, you know. Being a nurse, I was there ready to advocate. I went from serving a lot of patients to one. And um, I'm so grateful that I had that background and that advocacy because I walked in and instead of being greeted, you know, with help and um, support and um, resources, I was greeted with a very red tape in the box system. And immediately my alarm, my red flag started going off you know, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. And it was actually, it wasn't the VA um, hospital initially is the army. So uh, still single payer, correct. But it was the army medical center at, at Walter Reed. We would experience the VA a little bit later. Um, so it was, it was mostly the department of defense that I took on. So I was very quickly brought into a room after seeing Scotty um, for the first time at 24 years old. And, um, because I had power of attorney, you know, I, I was asked to sign on the dotted line. They said, so hold on, hold on. Yeah. How tall are you? I'm 5'10". Okay. So a virtual David and Goliath story here, right? You're yes. 5'10", 24, coming in, weighing it at, a, you know, 110 yeah. pounds dripping wet, fighting <laughs> off, fighting machine. Completely. Tiffany yes. Smiley at your service. Yes. Okay. yes. So you I mean, storm, you, know. you storm the Pentagon and what happens? Yes, I I told them no. You know, I said I'm not. Oh, on. You told them no <laughs> about what? What what weren't you going to do? So they had the paperwork in front of me. They said sign right here and begin your husband's medical retirement from the army. And I said, oh, oh well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about his care? You know, who's he going to see when you when you kick us out of here? How is he going to recover? What are the resources? Who, you know, I had all these questions and they tried to answer them, but they couldn't, they, it didn't make sense to me. And, you know, I believed just the nurse in me that Scotty should fully recover to full capacity to his highest capability. um, And, and he should be the one to make that decision. And so I told them no. And the doctor pushed it in front of me a little bit further. And he said, Mrs. Smiley, I don't think you understand. Your husband has no eyes. There has never been someone to continue service blind. Sign the paperwork. It's almost as if like, you're crazy. You need, this is what everyone does. Fall in line, follow suit and sign the paperwork. And I looked at him a second time. I said, no, I'm not signing it. And I, I, you know, I took the paperwork. I I put it in a drawer and I I haven't seen it to this day. (laughs) It's it's probably in the basement of Walter Reed in a shredder somewhere. Um, But it gave me time as nurses. You sounds like your demeanor was far more uh, polite and far less indignant than I think I would have addressed the the officer with. Yeah, I was I was polite. 
I was polite, you know, um, I, I was respectful, but I stood up for what was right. Yes. Um, and, you know, built a coalition that believed in the vision that I had, because in that moment, I wasn't just standing up for Scotty. Right. There was thousands of families like ours that were feeling this, that were brought into the room, just like I was. Um, and I just, I felt like it was, you know, it wasn't good healthcare. It, It wasn't going to set Scotty up for a productive recovery, um, to step into purpose and freedom. Um, especially after such a devastating catastrophic injury. Um, and so I believed in another way and, you know, Scotty is amazing in his own right, but as you can imagine, there were many, many dark days and many days when I stood at the door and just advocated and, and said, no, no to this. Yes to this. This is how we're going to get him better. And he went on and became the first blind active duty officer to continue service to our country. Um, And he's an incredible human being. I mean, I'm biased, but um, together, together we fought a system that did not have our best interests or health in mind. It was just a system to check the blocks and follow, you know, the routes and we can be doing so much better, so So much better. You dropped a whole lot of big ideas in that one little <laughs> little uh, set of paragraphs. I just want to take a few of them. So, they what what did they say the implications of his resigning his service would be? What does that mean for care? It's over. Well, that's, that's what I was unsure of. What that meant for care is that he would he would bump into the VA system. Okay, that's what that meant for care. He would he would automatically be channeled into the VA. Um, but his injuries were very complex and very unique. And, and so I was trying to, I thought, why can't we just stay here and recover and have, you know, the best of the best doctors. Isn't that what you're do when you serve your country? Um, so it was really unknown too. you know, there was like a lot of unknowns, so I wasn't comfortable with that. I wasn't comfortable in signing that for Scotty. Um, and I wasn't comfortable in signing that away for our future either. So yes, he would be cared for. He would have health care. Yes. But it would be a transfer into the VA system. With new set of doctors, new set of procedures, yes. new, new set of care protocols, all of which with which you are unfamiliar, no promises on what's going to happen, no clarity on next steps, et cetera. And- Right. And if we were at that point, let's say we were to move back home. Well, the closest VA back home is an hour away. So what does that mean? Do we have to now move next to a VA? So now the VA is dictating, you know, where we can live. Wow. So you must have been pretty pleased at this moment. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm just looking, I want to kind of pull out these other things that you've said, because I think they're really important. Uh, there are several takeaways there. One, um, you went in as a nurse, you and a wife, you put your nurse hat on while being a wife, but you also called upon the reserves that you had in your embedded values around service to serve others while you're fighting your fight, finding strength in that service in serving others, because it's not just you who's fighting this battle. It's others who are fighting this battle with you and through you. Is that fair to say? Yes, correct. 
And then you grabbed hold of another idea, which um, I think is incredibly well articulated, never heard before, but the response of how will he serve with freedom and purpose? How will he serve with freedom and purpose? Wow. I, that's deeply moving. I, that, you know, I, my, uh, I'm going to share this with you, but my family was all Navy. So that either makes me a, a white sheep or a black sheep in your eyes. I don't know. The but, army is the Navy, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's what they say. But um, so this idea of service is deeply rooted in those who, who join. I, you know, I didn't, uh, but my, all, most males in my family went to the academy and the Naval Academy. And, um, you know, we have a long tradition there that, you know, I'm grateful to just watch and, and honor. But when I hear what you say, it just strikes so many chords at such a deep level, uh, so meaningfully. And you, you carried that into what you're doing now, which is continuing to work side by side with Scotty, obviously, but, and he's continuing to serve the fact that he is willing to do that. It's just, and, and kind of not necessarily forget, but certainly forgive and move on is a testament to your likely your faith. I don't know your faith, but I likely your faith and your uh, commitment to service to, to others. So how did you come out of that? I mean, and, and where are you now? So that was, that was 16 years ago. And, so now tell me how you're building upon that or, or continuing to work with it. What's what, what, what the heck are you doing now? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, we fought the department of defense and I would say we won, not just for Scotty, but for thousands of families. So you're, um, you're one to know in wars. What's that? You're one to know in wars. <laughs> yes. No, two. No. So, so there, there's a couple more. Um, then, you know, when Scotty was after we served a whole nother decade, served our country a whole nother decade for, uh, you know, all three of our baby boys are born in different cities, moved eight times in 10 years. And um, then we took on the VA because then he was ready to get out and transfer, transfer out. And, and when we came up to the VA, you know, again, another medical system where he's given a stack of paperwork, you know, high stack of paperwork, told to go through it. He's blind. He's blind. So he has to scan every single page as he's going through. And, and when he called to get assistance, they said, well, don't you have a wife who can help you? So I said, okay, I'll call. I'm happy to call. So I get on the phone and, and they say, Mrs. Smiley, you have to hire a lawyer to navigate the VA benefits system. And I said, excuse me, you know, and, and Scotty was kind of at a point where he was tired. He was exhausted. He said, I don't want to deal with this. I'm done. And I said, no, 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 because if we're feeling this, then there's other families like ours that are feeling the same battle. Um, And so, you know, we took our message all the way from Washington state to Washington, DC, to the Oval Office, to the president. Um, And we were big proponents of choice and making sure that our veterans have access and care, um, you know to a, a choice doctor, right? Maybe specifically to their injury, you know, specialty that they might need or someone just right down the road. Because what we came up against is the VA every year that Scotty needed um, his prosthetic eye, eyes polished, they would ask us to come to the VA over an hour away um, to look at the eye chart, to get the referral. This is, this is real. To have the eye exam, the referral to go 
you know, either get a new set of prosthetic eyes or have them polished. I mean, this is what our fan, this is, you know, so when you start oh looking God. at, you start looking at healthcare in, in our country, I'm mean, like, take it from a family like ours. You do not want a single payer. So take it from a family like ours. You don't want the government involved in some of the most, you know, deeply personal decisions we'll ever make. I mean, it just, it, it's not effective. It, it's almost silly. I mean, that you recorded some of the conversations that we've had to have. I mean, it's just, it's, it's makes no sense. And one of the things I say often um, is that rules are the enemy of judgment. And because you can, you, you can't exercise judgment and say, Hey, this doesn't make any walking around sense. Uh, a phrase we use a lot in Texas, we, that doesn't make any walking around sense. But uh, additionally, um, people can rest safely in the rule. In other words, hey, I follow the rules. What do you want me to do? So they can't, you can't fire that person for following the rule, right? And so you, you really just, I can imagine, you have a lot more hair than I do, but I wouldn't have any hair left at all if I uh, was going through that process. It's like, really, can't you, do you have zero common sense here? So um, you, you get through that point where you're fighting for everybody else. You're trying to move towards a life of service with freedom and purpose. I'm going to continue iterating it because I think it's so powerful. And then what? So, we, you know, Scotty and I have been blessed to be able to speak on many national stages and share our story um, to impact others' lives. And, you know, it came a point where we, you know, we're raising our three boys. We built, you know, have a beautiful home, raising our three boys and really felt that satisfaction of creating a life that we truly love. It, it was hard. It was difficult. Um, you know, all the peaks and valleys, but it was also the beautiful tapestry um, of our life resume, essentially our journey line. And, you know, as I look at my three boys, I realize that their future demands us taking this taking the torch and standing up. And so, you know, together, I, I say our family is absolutely running. Our family is in this together. Um, but three months ago, I announced my candidacy for United States Senate um, to fight for Washington families. Um, and not just that, but to fight for families all over this nation. That what we've experienced also in the last year and a half demands that leaders stand up. You know, career politicians are not our future. And um, I'm fighting every day for our children, our grandchildren's future. So how the heck did you make that decision? Nurse, mom, wife, <laughs> all of a sudden, eh, I think I'll go into the Senate. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Well, you know, I think, gosh, you know, when I think of that question, I go back to April 6th, 2005, when the phone rang. And, you know, life, and I think you can relate with, to this as well, Todd, with your story. I mean, never, never in a million years would I think my life would go into politics. And certainly at that point, I didn't think that either. Um, but, you know, there's certain things in my journey that I do remember. And one of them was I remember crumbling on the floor at Walter Reed and that the heart to help others, um, the burden was so demanding that I remember just saying, Tiffany, you can help Scotty now, but someday you'll come back and help everyone else. Like someday you'll make it right. Um, and I feel that, you know, through that journey and then taking on the VA and, and going to DC, I would 
go to Capitol Hill and knock on doors. I would take meetings with anyone that would take a meeting with me um, and share the vision, you know, share, just share what's right. And I started to see, you know, some of the meetings I would go into, I'd have my points all laid out. And uh, the representative would look at their staff and, and, you know, oftentimes they'd say, oh, we haven't looked at that in multiple decades. You know, oh, we haven't. And, and you just start to question and, you know, ask a lot of questions and question everything. And I started to realize, wow, Tiffany, you know, you, we have to use our voices. This country demands that we use our voices. Um, and in some small way, I think, you know, our faith journey and, and the path that God has led us down, he showed us that stand, you know, like use your voice for others. You know, I was able to be a voice for Scotty when he didn't have one. Um, and I think for whatever reason, my drive just to stand up for what's right has a- allowed me and led me into places to be a voice for others. And it would, it's a hard decision. Believe me, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget the moment when I was deciding if I'm really going to, you know, do this and jump into getting into politics. And, uh, I was outside and I was looking at my three boys, they're running around. One was jumping in the pool and I had to ask myself, are you going to say no to this because of the comfort of your life? Wow. Are you going to stand, are you going to stand up and fight for your children's future? And it was very clear as day right there that if I didn't do this, I would regret it. And I would wonder if I missed a very opportunity to stand up for my children and their future. You know, I, Scotty and I always teach our boys, when you have the opportunity to stand up and do what's right, you always do it. Wow. So what better way to model that than to put it into action ourselves? And, you know, we really, as a family, this is an extension of our service to this country. Wow. How does, you know, I've not met Scotty. I haven't had that pleasure or honor. And I'm just wondering, how does he think about, what does he think about all this? He was the one shoving me out, <laughs> shoving me out the door. You know, he, he, it was interesting because he says, you know, Tiffany, everyone, you know, sort of thinks I should get into politics, but he said, I wish people knew the fighter that you are, you know, he, he, and he, he said this publicly as well is, you know, he says, the only reason I'm alive is because of you. Yeah. You're, uh, you know, one of the things that is a struggle to find increasingly is not only conviction and, and values and people who lead with that but also somebody who's, who has clarity about their, their purpose and their passion. Mm. And that comes across so uh, strongly. Your convictions come across so strongly that, it's, you know, I received that 3,000 miles away, 2,000 miles away with great conviction. And uh, I'm just so grateful. I, I can't even thank you enough. So mm. it's, a, it's a very impressive and, and powerful story that uh, I hope everyone gets to hear. And I hope that uh, your work on the trail gives voice to all the people you've, you've drawn, drawn power and, and reserve and energy from and support from uh, on the trail. So tell me, uh, when are you going to win your election? What, what is that 22? <laughs> yes, November, uh, 2022. Okay, very good. So 
I, uh, I need, I need to kind of wrap this up now. I could talk to you for another four or five hours and I'm sure that I would wear out my welcome in about five minutes, but, uh, it's been such an absolute joy getting to know you a little bit and to, to hear your story. And, uh, I just, I'm so grateful for you and Scotty and not just because of your service, but because, uh, you are living your lives with freedom and purpose. And I'm just, I'm just, uh, ecstatic to see it and hear the story. So thank you so much. For those of you on, for those of you listening to the podcast or watching the podcast, your handkerchiefs are to the right and the Kleenex boxes to the left. Um, I uh, I encourage you to watch this more than once. It's worthwhile. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.com. Dot group.